Welcome back to the Brook Street People First podcast. Hi. One of the big things that is quite stressful is going for an interview or even starting your first day at work once you've got the job. Yeah. Like that, the anxiety is crippling. Yeah. I want to talk about how we manage that. Manage self. It's a big thing. Yeah. And I don't, by the way, I don't think it's just interviews or first day. I think this could be... I'm in a job, I've got a big meeting, I'm doing a presentation, I'm having to stand up in front of people, I've got to go on a team's call with a new team. It could, it could be a number of different things. But I think um, anxiety and how to manage that is, is quite a big thing in the workplace at the moment. Have you had to manage any anxiety lately? <laughs> um, I have. And you know, look, I've been around a long time. So People may look at me and think, yeah, she's got it together. She's, you know, she'd have no problem going in. But I, I can think of you an are example. very calm. It doesn't look like anything's ever stressing you out. Yeah, but, you know, have you heard that saying about the swan? Is it the swan or the duck? Uh, a duck, yeah. yeah. Where, you know, it all looks nice and calm on the surface, but underneath it's all going very wild. Yeah, yeah. that's me. Yeah, I can think of an example recently where I was going to do a big presentation woke up with just major anxiety you know going into a room 30 40 people going to be at the front of the room presenting thinking oh imposter syndrome's kicking in why am I there who am I for me it's just about getting up getting dressed getting myself there getting myself onto the train into London to go and do it and then not letting myself talk myself off of the train and trust me I came close you know, anxiety is... What do you it mean? It can be. Well, it can be, you know, that internal dialogue. I'm, mm. I'm on the train and I'm just talking myself down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up and make a fool of myself. I'm going to pass out in front of everybody. It's going to be awful. You know, look, the reality of that is, is never the case. But when that self-doubt or that, when that anxiety kicks in, you have to be able to dig deep and find those coping mechanisms to, to be able to deal with that. Do you have any? Um. Yeah, of course. And I watch a lot of TikTok and this stuff is, you know, it's great. And Mm. there's some really great advice on there. I do a lot of breath work. Breath work? Yeah. In my other podcast, The Andy Rowe Show, I interviewed, uh, or I've interviewed quite a few SAS guys. Yeah. Box breathing. Yeah, they talk about breath work a lot. Yeah. And there's some great techniques. And look, while you're sitting on a train going into London, which is packed, it's not as easy to start, you know. But there are things you can do and there are things you can do to just slow everything down and just talk yourself down. What do you, how does your breath work actually work in practice? Like, what are you doing? You know, the, the uh, one technique that I've, I've learned recently is about the deep inhale followed by another really sharp inhale and then a breath out. So you take a really like long breath, short breath, not through, not through the mouth, but through the nose. Oh. But, you know, you can pick up loads of this stuff on TikTok and it's really effective. We'll put this on TikTok. Do you know what it does when you're doing the breath work? Do you? Yeah, it's more oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. That's the key to it. Right. And it just slows everything down because when you're, you know, anxious, you're not breathing properly. And that's the big thing here. You've got to get control of that breathing. That's it. It's just like even when you're stretching at the gym and you, you hear the personal trainer yeah. going, take a deep breath. breath. Yeah. Because you can take the stretch further, right? Yeah. If you if you are going into any situation and you know what you're going in to talk about, and if it's yourself, then of course you know what you're mm. talking about. If you're going into an interview, you are fundamentally talking about you. So you know all of the answers, and that's the thing you've got to hold on to. Yeah. And once you get a grip of the nerves and the anxiety, 
you know, and you get yourself off of the train and you get yourself into the meeting room and you go in there and you do a great job or do a brilliant job. The feeling you get on the other side of that is fantastic. Well, today's guests will be able to give us a really good insight into how to manage our emotions, anxiety, and even our imposter syndrome in times when we really need our mind and actions to be focused and at peak performance. Joining us now is former RAF fighter pilot and Red Arrow, Dan Lowe's. I just want to pick up on something real quick. It's, um, I think it's easy to get carried away with our oh, fighter pilot or flew for the red arrows. I get this a lot, especially the topics we're going to discuss today. And I get told a lot of the times, yeah, but I'm not a fighter pilot or I'm not going to take something to such an extreme level. But I think that could be quite short-sighted, really. You know, it's things we talk about here. It's not a lecture. It's not how things should be done. Yeah. Uh, and this isn't about becoming a fighter pilot. And if you're out there listening and you're young enough to still apply, I wholeheartedly think you should because <laughs> it is one of, the, one of the best jobs in the world. But if you're not lucky enough or you haven't got the opportunity to become a fighter pilot, the stuff we'll talk about in the questions, I don't want you to, to link that to being a fighter pilot. I just want you to realize how... These methods, these processes, or these beliefs took me to a high level in what I chose to do, yeah. uh, and how you know you can take these things to a world class level. Uh, I talk a lot about things that we did in the Red Arrows. A lot of people say, "Well, I'm never going to be a Red Arrow," but that's that's not the point. The point is, how can you take someone who isn't in that position and over a seven month period make them world class? That's what we did, and yeah. it wasn't a set process. That was just set disciplines and pillars of performance that we used in that particular environment. So hopefully a lot of this reads across to to whatever your listeners are are planning to do. And that would be great because I think when you think about things like interviews or presentations or anywhere where you want to put your best foot forward, it is a moment in time, isn't it? It is an hour, it's 15 minutes, whatever, whatever it may be. How do you get yourself into a position where you are showing the best of you? Yeah, Uh, and that's something we we can dissect. I think personally it starts with having a plan and then I I am a real believer in visualization. So I I remember from a young young age actually wanting to join the Air Force, wanting to be a fighter pilot, but that didn't just mean talking about it, that meant reading up on it, that meant going to the air shows, really starting to believe it, starting to see yourself in that position and then starting to research how, how to make your way or give yourself the best opportunity to, to work yourself towards it. I then found over the years as I got into it, there's compartmentalization. So you're in that moment, as you just said, uh, and then you quickly assess your own performance, drop it if it's poor, learn from those lessons. Don't be afraid to fail. That's a big thing that I've learned throughout my career, and hopefully we can dig into that as well. And then it's all about in the moment, understanding that it's right now. So pure focus and, and understanding what it is that's expected from you, not only as a leader, but as a team player and how you're going to go and execute yourself. Let's we're going to unpick all these things, but let's just set the scene for a start because you you started there and we how you started your career. You're a young lad. Let's just find out a little bit about you and how you got to your position where you are at the moment because it's you know, it's always good to kind of know where this information's coming from. So what happened? You watched Top Gun and thought you're going to be a jet fighter pilot like I did, but you actually became one. Yeah, and the rest every, of history. <laughs> like every young lad in the eighties that watched Top Gun thought, "I'm going yeah. to be one of those guys." Yeah. What, what happened? Like, how did no, you? No, I, I, I used things like that. Of course, things like that inspired me. I think it's. I think when we think back to being children, we all had dreams of what we wanted to go off and be. Uh, and yeah, I just really believed in that being a real opportunity. And I, I know opportunities don't always come easy to other people in in those dreams you know I'm talking about sports people how many people try and be a football player for example or or go on and play representative sport I understand it's hard it's it's competitive but for me I just had a dream I was surrounded luckily I was surrounded by aviation my father flew so I was exposed to those kind of stories and those tales of what I thought were quite adventurous ways to live your life and 
you know, I actually went to a school quite close to an airport, so sometimes you can even just smell the aviation fuel, you know. So it was just in me. I loved it. It yeah. was something I wanted to do, and I, I still meet up now. You know, I'm, in, I'm 37. I still meet up with school friends who talk about how they used to get bored of hearing me at school say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to become a fighter pilot, so it's all right. But it's just something I believed in. And it was just working out then where I could go to get it. So what did I need? to be a fighter pilot that's all I cared about that's all I cared about I needed leadership skills okay I need to get into sport I need to get into activities outside of school that's going to expose me to be able to lead teams but also be a team player you know how am I going to get myself to the position as early as I can do I need to go to university in my case I didn't uh, and I took a big big um, decision age 16 not to or 17 not to apply for university took it on chance I mean now it's probably a naive decision I, I would recommend that you apply if you have the opportunity to go to university because had it not gone well for me there was no plan b so maybe that's another thing that I would encourage people to look at the only thing is though sometimes not having a plan b and only having a plan a is the right answer because you're so laser focused on that that failure just doesn't become an option correct yeah and I failed early as well, which was a bit awkward. So I, I, applied, I applied 16 or 17 for the Air Force for these scholarships for uh, sixth form, essentially. You know, you can, they give you a bit of money, you can go get flying lessons, and if you're successful for that, there's an opportunity to hopefully join the Air Force. So, you know, having pinned all my dreams on this, as you say, there was no plan B, uh, and I went for my first application round and just completely bombed. I don't know if I was too nervous, I hadn't prepared myself correctly, or I didn't know what, what to expect but I, maybe I wasn't mature enough, who knows, but I failed. And I remember getting on that train from uh, Grantham in Lincolnshire back to London with a, sorry, try again in a year's time, 16, 17. And there's two things from that. I think, I think you're right. Without that laser focus, I think it would have been easy to crumble at that point and not come back a year later, which ultimately was a successful application round. But it also taught me very early on and something I used throughout my career to take me to what I, I would say was a fairly elite level was that ability of recovering from failure and actually understanding that there's no need to fear failure. Failure is part of this process. It's a learning process, and the quicker you can embrace that and learn from it and understand your self-performance in a failing environment, I genuinely think you come back stronger and more prepared for, for the next event. I agree, because I think no is quite powerful if taken in the right context. How do you mean? Well, like Dan says, it's one of those where I see no as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to turn it into a yes. So you go for a job interview, you're not successful. Providing you take the feedback, you learn from the feedback, you move on, and you, you, know, you keep that laser focus and you know where you want to go, no can very quickly become a yes. I'm a massive advocate. I talk often now about learning through failure or succeeding through failure because, again, I've got so many stories where failure is you know, hit me in the face and, and it was so easy to, to turn around. You know, I, I look back at what was a fairly competitive selection process. So once you get in the Air Force and all these different courses you go through to eventually become a fighter pilot, there's a certain standard you have to hit at each stage. And if you don't hit that standard, then, you know, there's other opportunities for you in the Air Force, but you're not going to continue to be a fighter pilot. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of, a lot of hoops to jump through. And again, very, I, I look back now, as a blessing at the time it was hard work you know I was probably the only pilot who would probably fail on every course some guys would go five years without failing a trip and I'd managed to probably fail one once a year you know it was and so you kept thinking oh this isn't going to work out for me but you keep coming back strength of character comes in you learn you develop and at the end of the five years there were some guys who had never failed who failed clearly at the hardest at the hardest hurdles which is right at the very end and they didn't know how to recover from it and they spiraled and these guys have been the ones that you know I was pinning up as 
I wish I could be more like these people. And, you know, five years later, you're stood looking around you and they're not there anymore. Uh, and that's because they hadn't embraced the ability to fail early. And again, you know, as mentioned, didn't get in the Air Force, but I didn't get in the Red Arrows for the first two application process uh, rounds. And again, I could have just said, actually, do you know what? Now nah, let's move on. But it's that, it's that ability to understand that, as you say, you can turn that no into a yes. And I genuinely feel I've had one of the most fulfilling careers that I would have wanted uh, from, from that. Let's talk about, we'll come back to the Red Arrows. Let's talk about when you first got into the RAF. You're in the quick response team, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah essentially. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> basically, if anyone's going to, charge on into the UK airspace or if any pilot's going to fall asleep that you guys will go up wake them up or go off and scare them off scare scare the Russians out of that airspace essentially that's exactly it yeah. and then so you've got the job you've got into the RAF you're in the quick response team first day on the job you must have been bricking it like how do you deal with that like you're actually you are actually the front line for the UK defence system. You are flying this very expensive, powerful jet. Everyone's relying on you. You're the guy. Yeah, you are. And you're, you're, the, you're the person at the end of a very long decision process that ultimately, at the end of the line on a mobile phone, is the Prime Minister, and you're at the end of a radio call, one decision away from changing world history. And that's, that's the importance of that role. And it's, it's, so it's called Quick Reaction Alert. There's, um, just to give some background to it, the Royal Air Force have two aircraft in, the, in England, so in Lincolnshire, fully armed with two pilots, ready to go 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, yeah, every day of the year. Really. There's not a day that, that that building doesn't have someone in it ready to do the job. And there's two on the north coast of Scotland, so we've got the whole of the UK protected. And essentially the job is to um, maintain sovereignty of our UK airspace. Uh, UK airspace, you hear about international waters, international airspace all the time. We own 12 miles off our coast uh, and flying 12 miles, you know, we fly seven miles a minute. So, you know, it's not very far for an aircraft to hit international airspace, but then actually come into our, into our, you know, over, over our land. So quite often there's Russian aircraft doing patrols and there's um, airliners who don't respond to radio calls, as you say. We don't know who's on board. You know, we've obviously seen some horrific incidents in the past where civilian aircraft have been used as weapons. So we need to be prepared for all those at any point. And the UK and the Royal Air Force is, is there to do that job, and it does it as we speak right now. So, yeah, first day, probably I was 23, 24 years old, reported to duty. Uh, and it's quite a serious event. It's quite yeah. a, um, it's a bit Cold War, you know. The buildings are thick concrete walls. The jets are in two separate hangars, a little bit like the Thunderbirds, you know, cartoon and you press a button and the doors open for you automatically. And there are two fighter aircraft, fully fueled and fully tooled up with missiles, ready to do ultimately whatever it needs to be done in order to protect our airspace. So you can imagine turning up in that kind of environment. It's incredibly intimidating. Are you are you a cocky twenty three year old, or are you a very nervous twenty three year old when you see this? I think I'm a bit of both. You're kind of taught to back yourself in those scenarios. You, know, there's, you can't get through. A process really like being uh, you know fighter pilot training if you, there's not a little bit of belief in yourself yeah you know, i liken it a bit to the bo- to being a boxer you know if if you had a boxer who was timid and you put them in the ring you know it's already they've lost the mind games of what could happen and especially in aerial combat the aircraft we flew there's only one seat so there wasn't there wasn't a navigator you know like you see in the top gun film with maverick and goose there was just to the shoot. pilot that can be a lonely working environment because you can't really ask someone else what do you think we should do? You know, and at 24, in a, in a, you know, a multi-million pound fighter jet with an ambiguous uh, working environment that's constantly changing. And, you know, we, we worked at pretty high speeds, you know, 13, 1500 miles an hour at top speed. And they're coming in and you know, you've got 
guys coming at you at the same kind of speed. So you know, if we're starting with a problem that's 100, 200 miles away, you're talking five, 10 minutes before that problem's on top of you. So you don't have a lot of time to work stuff out. So to answer the question, to give you a bit of background, yeah, you're, you're assured of your ability. How do you get taught to back yourself in that scenario? We had a training structure, and I, I would say that one of the things that I did really enjoy about a military background, but for me in the Royal Air Force, is that from day one, I joined at 19, you have to go to officer training first. So they had an incredible, which I would say is a world-class training system that taught people to lead early on, and that was to make decisions, but also to use the expertise around you. So we might think we've got the perfect answer, but hey, look, I'll tell you what, out of the three of us sat here, this is the problem for today. We all agree on it, but I would like you, Andy, to go away. And if you were an adversary or if you were a competitor, how could you rip our plan apart? And so constantly you had someone destroying your plan so you could come up with a with a better idea. I and hate that. I don't want anyone ripping my plan No, apart. but it happens. You know, look at the, um, only last night actually, I was watching The Apprentice and it was the round where their business plans are looked at by yeah. leading experts. And, and they fall apart in... And that's not a bad thing. You know, a lot of these people were destroyed that their dreams were being ripped apart in front of their faces. Their figures didn't work or their manpower figures didn't add up. That's not bad because they can now go away and come up with a better business plan and go. So, again, it actually goes back to that by failing and and learning. But the whole process was there so that ultimately, at the end of the day, you could do a job. And there was a support network around you. There was every ability to learn. There was uh, books or to read in terms of, you could learn about your company so you could understand the traditions and the history of where you come from. I think that's very powerful uh, in order to understand why you're there to do the job. And again, you were surrounded by experienced individuals who not always would come to you with the information, but were definitely in that environment that you've had a question. They take you aside and help you. And can you give us an example of a time when you have, you know, so now you're, a, you're trained, you're there number one, sitting in the seat on your own, maybe potentially having to make a difficult decision or in the red arrows where you... I mean, do you even get anxiety? Is that, is that something that's like real life for you? Yeah, big time. Yeah, and a lot. A lot of the time, you know, that awful feeling when it's on your chest or when you wake up in the morning and you're just having your, your Weetabix and your coffee and, you, and you're kind of just hoping that someone calls you and said, oh, by the way, you don't, you don't need to come in today. You know, that kind of feeling. And then... Then you just take that step forward and you think, I'm just one, one step closer to this problem. Oh, all the time, all the time. I could talk about it being a fighter pilot before I was in the Red Arrows. You know, there was days where we would have some very complex missions or the weather was against us or there was times we'd be flying and we were running out of fuel and we need to get back. You know, all of a sudden, that anxiety starts to come in. Uh, and how do we deal with it? Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a believer in a bit of box breathing anyway. There's some breathing exercises that genuinely help me personally. Yeah. You know, so I used to find, you know, deep breath for five, hold for five, out for five, repeated would just give me that moment to kind of regather my thoughts i had a personal saying no fast hands it's very easy when you're panicking to react too quickly whether that's sending the wrong email saying the wrong thing to a business partner or a boss or just if you're in a technical environment you know brushing something and getting it wrong so have a saying no fast hands take a deep breath take a moment step Mm -hmm. back i always found that kind of lowered my anxiety and then it's just back to what I always thought was compartmentalization. It's like, how have I got here? I also suffered from, and I, I still do, suffered from imposter syndrome. It's just taking that moment to actually question yourself. Why are you here? I'm here because I've always wanted to be here. How did you get here? I got here through a very competitive process, and there's some great people who have helped me, taught me, and, and given me this opportunity. And now what we're going to do? Well, now we're going to show the world why we're good at what we are, and, and, and we're going to go out and execute. But that still doesn't take away that kind of moment on your chest where you're thinking, Phew, don't know if we're going to get through this. 
I'm pumped up. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) When you get into the Red Arrows, that didn't go that straightforward for you either. Let's start first by just talking about their selection process because it's not, I mean, the pilots are epic, but it's not necessarily the best pilots that get in, right? The Red Arrows ultimately is not the team that is made up of the best pilots in the Royal Air Force. Far from it. They're good. They're really good. Don't get me wrong. You have to be a fighter pilot. You have to have 1,500 hours. You have to be assessed above average. These, these little things that come in. But to me, they're the best team. And I'm a true believer in there having to be a selection threshold for a position. So, you know, right qualifications, right training. You can't just have anyone do any job. And so, yeah, with the Red Arrows, you, you had to have been a fighter pilot and you had to have flown so many flight hours. Of course you have. But that just got you so far. Uh, and a big thing that we used and something that I'm a huge advocate for is after that, it was based off character. And this goes back to why the Reds are not really the best pilots in the Royal Air Force, but they're the best team because individually they help each other and, and, and they succeed. Uh, and in my opinion, they're one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world at what they do, uh, which makes them an elite slash world-class outfit. And so, yeah, once, once you get through the selection process, it's then down to character. And what we do is we actually recruit the shortlist off their CVs, but we keep their names off the CV. So we look at their employment history, we look at their performance, we look at some very basic requirements they had early in their training, because that shows natural talent sometimes. Uh, but then more importantly, we look at where they are now. So how they've reacted to the debrief points, maybe, or the professional guidance they've been given over their careers and how they've used that to progress. Because one of the big things you need in that environment is someone who's happy to teach themselves or look for ways to improve themselves for the overall performance of the team without being spoon-fed that information. Uh, And there's something in our selection process that that proved that, what we can talk about in a moment. But I'm a huge advocate of finding the right character once they've passed that selection uh, threshold of qualification. Especially in that kind of environment, but any environment really. And I say this is what it reads across to any workspace you have to go to work and work with these people every day if you're a startup these are the people that you're going to look left and right to in some really low moments to take those really difficult step forwards or take big lunges of trust with and if they're just the wrong person because you you've recruited them purely off the fact that they've succeeded in a cv before you've seen them or you know spoken to them in those moments you, you see a lot of people fail from that and you can see some big gaps in in team or company mm-hmm. performances because the wrong person was put in that position purely based off the fact that they were excelling on their CV. So you guys then get to a process where your CV stacks up, your skills are good enough, you're a good enough pilot. Isn't there some sort of personality test that you guys run? The first selection process I went for, I genuinely failed because, well, my performance wasn't up to scratch and I, I didn't represent myself naturally. And I think that was because we go back to that laser focus. I wanted to do this since I was so young. And the way the selection process works is once you've gone through an initial round of CV, read through, get shortlisted, you actually get invited to the Red Arrows training camp for a week. Uh, And they normally train in Greece or Cyprus because towards the end of their winter training, if you like, before the season starts, they chase the good weather so they can really hammer out their shows three times a day, five days a week and get it fine-tuned. So when they come back, as I say, they're a world-class outfit. So you go and spend a week with them. So... A Sunday night, you get flown out there, and that's it. You meet the team in the hotel or on the training camp on a Sunday night, and there they are. And you kind of walk around. And you know these guys, naturally, because you know, the Air Force isn't the biggest place, but these guys are the Red Harris, and it is pretty intimidating. And they're super friendly, and they welcome you in, and they take your bags, and they put them in your room for you, and they, 
have a beer and say goodnight. But then the next day, there you are, 7 o'clock in the morning at breakfast. And they're all sat around having whatever it is they eat. And then you're sat in the car with them. And then all of a sudden, you're in their morning brief. And then before you know it, you're strapped in the back of a Ren Harris jet. And it's Monday morning, 8.30. You think, what is going on? You know, it's, 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 it's mind-blowing. It's awesome. It's exhilarating. And it's also incredibly intimidating. I think my first exposure to that and someone who's going for those jobs they've always dreamed of or those big jobs before, if I, if I could give them any pointers or you know, recommendations, is just that kind of self-worth. It's like, who are you? Why are you here? Why do you want to be here? Again, the deep breaths. Just understand you're there for a reason. And I didn't at the time. And that imposter syndrome kicked in. So I kind of went, I went a bit introverted. So I didn't really talk to people very much. I probably started conversations and questions rather than natural flowing conversation. I would have been an awkward character for them to see me as a real teammate. You know, is this the person with only nine people in a team that we're going to go all around the world? We're going to be away from home for maybe up to six months of the year. We're going to be tired. We're going to be hungry. You know, is this person going to add value to the team or is this person just going to ask me questions every minute of every day and drive me crazy? Uh, and probably within that, again, I had a hiccup in the flying test because I'm just super nervous, really. And so it was just that understanding of I, what I grew into was that mindset of backing yourself, as we, we spoke about before. So that was down to the, the character side of it. And eventually getting in and seeing guys try out for the team, yeah, I, I definitely had some empathy for those who found it hard to really show their natural self because you get one week, five working days to really show this team that your you know, your value is what they want. So, yeah, I, I really struggled with that. So the first time you didn't get in, did they give you some fairly detailed feedback in yeah. terms of why? Yeah, they do. And, and that's how I can, I can answer that question. And again, it's down to, they don't come looking for you for feedback. It's down to you having, I guess, the maturity and also the the hunger to understand why you have to call them, which is, again, an intimidating process, and say, hey, why, why didn't I get in? You know, not in as aggressive way as that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you find the right guy, you sit down and you say, hey, look, I had an amazing experience. This has cemented the dream that it's where I want to be. It's really what I want to do. And if I was to be successful in the future, what is it that I need to work on in the next year, year and a half to, to give myself a, a really good chance? And I think that's a huge thing to do because it gives two, two things. It gives that hopeful uh, future employer. You know, it gives them a, a look into who you are. Are you someone who... Oh, they've rejected me, so I'll reject them. That's probably not the right person for your team. Mm. But it also shows someone who's hungry to learn, hungry to succeed, hungry to improve, so that when they get that next shot, so when you know, and it comes back to preparedness, that moment that you get the shot, are you ready to pull the trigger in whatever it is you want to do? And if you're not constantly learning about you know where you could have improved or what you got wrong, you'll never be in a position to take that shot. And I think that's a really important aspect to people looking for the roles that they really, really want to fulfill. It must also be tough going into that situation where you're trying to be someone that they want. Mm. And that's something that we try and coach for people when they're going for an interview is to be yourself and be authentic. But very, very difficult if you're going into a, into a situation where you're conscious that maybe this is what they want. Maybe, maybe this is what they're looking for. So maybe I'll be that person. Yeah, so easy to second guess yourself. Well, you know, we're, we're all very natural at prophesizing what we think people want to hear. With you know what people want to see, I mean, I think going back to that first application round, I think I went for dinner once, and I remember going down in like a jeans and a polo shirt, thinking, "Oh, I got to the lift, and that's a bit too cash." Went back, put a shirt on, got to the lift. I was like, "Oh, maybe it's a bit overdressed." 
And I remember going, I mean, we were just going down the road for a kebab, pretty much. And I got dressed three times to, just in case they thought, oh, he dressed, he dressed appropriately. So, yeah, we do that. And, I mean, you do that at all levels. I do that, you know, just, I don't know, going to the pub to see friends. We do it all the time. Um, the real value is understanding what your worth is and, and who you are and what you offer to the team. And obviously, you're not going to turn up to a business event in jeans and a T-shirt. It's, it's being appropriate in, in your approach. But it goes back to that understanding of, you know, when did you, as I say, when did you first come up with this dream? Why are you here? Who are you? What are you about? And what does this team want? The team doesn't want someone who worries about what they're wearing. They want someone to turn up, just be natural, be yourself, be able to engage in a conversation, be there at the low moments, be someone who wants to work hard, in their own improvement, self-improvement for the overall output for the team. That's what people really want, in my opinion. And yeah, it's it's so easy to miss the big picture stuff and get bogged down in the tiny little, am I wearing the right collar for dinner, for the kebab, uh, that, that you just lose focus. And I, as I say, that was, I'm talking about the year that I didn't get in. You know, These are the lessons that I learned that eventually would get to a point which would give me another opportunity. And because these things, I realized that it doesn't matter. This is the big, this is the small stuff, focus on the big stuff just made me a more natural person around the people that I was trying to impress, I guess. That's the best way to put it in a selection process. And it worked out. Dan Lowe's, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me.